man, he walks with me, and he talks with me. I mean, come on, man, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would encounter us today. Father, in the humility of our own hearts and our own lives, Lord, we press in to find you. Father, we praise you. Lord, speak to us. Have your way, O oh Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. As Daniel would say, my eyes are sweating. Ah! Okay, here we are. Um, let's see. I am in John 4. I want to look into the camera and welcome everyone who's joining us online on Facebook or YouTube or even in arrears after the facts, but we're happy to call you part of our community. Um, I'm in the latter half of John 4. We've been rolling through John. Um, and before I go there, I want to, uh, let me just kind of set the table with a couple of things organizationally, and then, then we'll actually then set the table with a few things um, sort of spiritually, okay? Uh, so organizational, few, few additions. Uh, Monica Goza, are you in here? There's Monica. Monica has been added to our board of trustees. Um, Monica has a lot of leadership in the New Hanover County Schools over a lot of years. She's just a delightful person, walks with Jesus powerfully. Your husband, David, right there. We're really grateful for you both. But Monica, welcome to uh, the Saltbox Trustee Board. Thank you. Let's give the Lord a hand. Yeah. So that rounds out our Saltbox Trustee Board with five. They're all listed online. Monica's name's not there, but will be. Um, at some point. Let's see, the other thing that's happened, um, which we're really grateful for, is uh, Tony and Christine Perez. They have stepped in as um, our middle school and high school directors, um, so we're really excited about that. Tony and Christine, wave at us. Um, now, it, it, our last Wednesday night here is this Wednesday? Okay, so we will be here this Wednesday. Okay, campfire night this Wednesday, and then starting next Wednesday, which, what date is that? The 30th, someone says, okay, we're going to the new location, which is off of Burnt Mill, and we'll be there indefinitely, forever. We have signed a five-year lease, so come on. Okay. All right, cool. Um, let's see. You know, one of the things that I mentioned that a few people really responded to that I wanted to mention again is um, at the end of each calendar year, we take all of our tithes for that year, and we take 10% off the top, um, and we give it away as a church. So um, we just took $45,000 and just gave it away because of your generosity. And I just wanted to say, way to go. Thank you, guys. Um, that's something that all of our church leadership is committed to, and we give that to uh, ministries and churches around the world that are lifting the name of Jesus and planting churches and empowering indigenous peoples, and that's what we're about championing. So anyway, thank you guys for your generosity, um, and we're thrilled to continue to do that. Let's see. Yellow truck was out four times this week. I'm holding up four, like, you know, more. Uh, four times this week. If you're not a part of that or want to get a part, want to be a part of that, wave at us, Shannon. Shannon leads that effort. Um, the yellow truck gets out and shares Jesus and serves coffee in that order. Sometimes we do it with a smile. Sometimes we pray with people, but um, it's, it's an amazing ministry. And we're actually getting invitations to schools and places of work. And it's just amazing that church is being invited to go to secular places. Come on. That's what, that's what Jesus did is he took church to people, and that's what that little yellow truck out there does is it takes church, takes Jesus, takes people that are loving people out into the world. So if you want to do that, um, then, then see Shannon, and we'll go from there. Let's see. I think that's it other than today is a kind of a bittersweet day. This is our last Sunday in this little room. Um, I've liked this space. Um, I didn't in the beginning, believe it or not, when our, our lead team was like, Michael, we feel like we're supposed to go here. Guess what I said? I don't want to. 
Um, but it's been a delightful time. They were right. Um, so grateful we've been here. But starting next Sunday, the 27th, we're going to be at Rolling Grace. That's right. And that'll be a, uh, we, we had hoped to have a little bit more in place uh, in terms of just the portable church setup. We're working with a company and there's some, I guess, supply chain issues. Um, <laughs> you, you've heard that before, right? Um, so anyway, well, here's the good news though. In typical salt box fashion, we will be understated and Jesus first. That's all I really care about. Don't really care where we meet. Don't really care what it looks like. As long as he's there, I'm there. And the moment he goes, guess what? I'm out. True. Okay. Um, I think that's it. So let's look at John 4. We're going to start in verse 43. Um, and we're going to go all the way to verse 54. So here, here's what I want. It's a shorter passage than we do sometimes, but here's what I want us to wrestle with um, as a church is um, why is it that Jesus is attracted to certain towns? Okay? Why is he attracted to certain geographical locations? Why does he uh, spend more time in certain places? And why are there other places that he's repelled by? Why are there other places that he packs up um, and goes to a different location? And I want to begin to even wrestle, what, what does that even mean? Why is Jesus attracted? Why does he come and dwell? Why does he minister in a particular place? And in another place, why does he leave? You can imagine where I'm going with this. And then I actually want to flip it because we're going to see from, from a, a little town or a couple little towns that Jesus ministers um, in, where I want to flip it and go, why are there certain people that Jesus meets most powerfully versus other people that Jesus doesn't meet powerfully or that, that don't necessarily encounter him? Um, and, and how is it that the kingdom of God encounters an individual um, while there's all kinds of other individuals perhaps nearby doing lots of good things, but they miss Jesus. It's a little bit scary, actually. So I want to open sort of those two. Why does Jesus um, descend and, and minister in a certain village or area? And then why does he minister to a certain person um, as opposed to another? So that's kind of what we want to look at. And uh, we'll, we'll open it um, sort of there. Now, let me say... As we um, launch and build and grow a church, I think one of my greatest fears, total, total vulnerability here, is that um, if you know anything about pioneers, pioneers eventually settle somewhere. You know what I'm saying? And when pioneers become settlers, sometimes the Holy Spirit continues to pioneer. And what do the settlers do? Oh, Lord Jesus. Oh, my goodness. So it's like, how do we as a church even stay in that place of sort of a pioneering spirit, kind of, if you will? How do we stay and even posture ourselves so that we continue in our own Jesus journey, both as individuals and then as a body? That's really the question that we're wrestling with. How do we stay in step with Jesus? Because I think a lot of times, if you're like me, I tend to um, either run ahead in anticipation or lag behind out of fear and, you know, who knows, like trepidation, or I don't like what he's doing, you know? So that's kind of where I think we're, we're going to wrestle with this morning. Um, 
One of the things that I love about our lead team is they are working so hard to wrestle out how do we um, reject formulas and rather find relationship? How do we reject like what's been done and succeeded at other places? And how do we contend for authentic relationship with Jesus and with each other? How do we, we follow the person of Jesus and keep pioneering? Um, and, and so many people get stuck on, I mean, we could all sit in this room and we could throw out things that have worked at other churches or other places and people just get stuck where something works, right? You got that old thing that humans do, correlation equals causation. Well, we turned the music up and we, we had drums and a ton of people came, so what do we do? We repeat it, or we turn the music down, or we stop serving coffee, or we could go any way, different way. We wore a suit and a tie, or we wore tennis shoes. I mean, there's all these different things, and there's, there's sort of uh, human rules that we almost fall into, and we make the assumption that because we did X, Y, or Z, and there was some growth or some attraction, that therefore, this must be God, so we keep doing it. And that's what I want to wrestle with today, because it's this very delicate, Lord, will you help us as we navigate and lead church. Um, So, church, uh, as we're moving towards John 4, church people who are much smarter than me always say that when you plan a church, you should draw out your, your, the, the person or people group that you're going after. Okay? Here's the people group. Are you ready? It's out of Isaiah 61, if you want to read it with me. Isaiah 61. This is actually when Jesus launched his ministry. He stood up in a little synagogue in Nazareth, and they handed him a scroll from Isaiah. It was his turn to read. And he he scrolled to this spot, and he stood there, and he read just a few verses. And here's what he said, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. Oh, Lord Jesus. He's called us to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, the release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve. That's who we're going for. Amen. So let it be. Here, here. Okay. So let's look to verse 43. We're in John 4. We're going to start in verse 43. And I want you to go in even with the mentality of what Jesus is doing and building. Because that Isaiah 1, or Isaiah 61 that we just read, is sort of the mentality with which Jesus is ministering. So verse 43 in John 4, here we go. After two days, he left for Galilee. So the question then is, where has he been for two days? Mm. He's in Samaria. And in Samaria, remember the woman at the well went and told the whole village, and the whole city kind of hated this woman. And she went back and shared Jesus with the whole city. And the whole city looks like they came to Jesus. So suddenly there's three or 400 people in this little town that have given their hearts to Jesus. And if you were a uh, pastor and you were traveling and three or 400 people decided to come out and give their heart to Jesus, what would you do? Stay. I mean, come on, this is great. I got a church. Wow, this is cool. Let's build a building, right? Yeah. And what did Jesus do? 
But one of the questions that I want you to begin to even fix in your mind is what was it that drew Jesus to Samaria because he's actually leaving Jerusalem? So what's in Jerusalem? Now remember, in Jerusalem, you have all of the high holy Pharisees, all the high holy scribes, all the high holy, some of the zealots, some of the Essenes. It's the center of all of the um, the, the, the Jewish sort of Hebrew um, Christian, or not Christian, but the the Hebrew Old Testament outworking. So all the holy high people are there. And Jesus actually rejects and leaves them, and he goes to little Samaria. And the whole town looks like they come to him. Okay, and then so it says, after two days, he left for Galilee. Now, he's actually um, from the region of Galilee. And what's fascinating to me is Jesus spent 18 months um, of his three years of ministry. Jesus just did ministry for three years. It's insane to me. But of the three years, he spent 18 months between these three little towns on the northernmost uh, tip of the Sea of Galilee. And he just moved about sort of from place to place, ministering in the absolute countryside. It'd, it'd be like us going out to, I, I don't know, um, you know, Watha or somewhere and, and establishing a... <laughs> establishing a church and a ministry. Like it, it is, it's like you, you pick the most um, sort of abject place where not that many people gather and you're like, that's where we're going to go. And that's what Jesus does. So after two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that prophets have no honor in their own country. So verse 45, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Very interesting. They welcomed him. They had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. So apparently there was a few people there at the Passover festival. They'd watched what had happened. And now, verse 46, once more he visited Cana in Galilee. Now, some of you remind, rewind back a couple chapters before in John 2. What did Jesus do in Cana? He turned the water into wine. Okay. So it's interesting to me that he's leaving Jerusalem. He's going back to a place where he's already done a miracle. So the question is, what's happening inside of people's hearts in Cana? What is drawing Jesus to Cana? Why is he rejecting the religious people? And he's going to this little funny abject place called Cana again to do perhaps something different. So let's see. Once more, um, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Okay, a couple things here that I think are, are really important. Um. A, a certain royal official. So powerful or not powerful? Powerful. Wealthy or not wealthy? Wealthy, exactly. So we have a, a in, in many ways, you have a wealthy, powerful man who's chasing down the homeless carpenter. The homeless stonemason. A lot of theologians connect this um, little passage to Luke 7, which is the centurion. Um, and I, I, I think it's different. I think there's enough things that it's a, it's a separate account. It's a separate situation. But remember, John is setting up, as he authors this, he's setting up certain things. So he's, he's immediately saying that this is the God um, who is uh, attracting, um, so, so powerful uh, and um, wealthy, and yet he lacks something. What's he lack? 
health for his son. There was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and he begged him. So he walked about 21 miles. It's about a 21-mile journey. This isn't like, you know, Jesus was next door. So the guy got up. Um, when was the last time you walked 21 miles for anything? So, so what I want you to immediately begin to see is you have here someone who is hungry for the person of Jesus. He's even, you could say, probably desperate for the person of Jesus. And all of his money and all of his power has done absolute squat related to his sick son. So in some ways, he is shucking all of the things that he has been and his success or whatever. He's going to leave them behind, and he's going to go see Jesus. Now, I want you to cross-reference uh, Luke um, let's see where it is. Luke 8, verse 3. I want to put this in context and even show you the end of the story. Luke 8, verse 3, if you're scrolling or flipping. Here's what 8, and I'm actually going to start in verse 1. Um, Luke 8, 1 says, After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Now skip down to verse 3. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household is one of the women who were helping to support them out of their own means. That's the end of verse 3. Okay, this is, this is Michael's theory. I can't prove it fully. But I believe that Joanna, um, who was the wife of Chusa, is probably the mom of this sick son. So I believe this guy's probably Chusa. He's one of Herod's um, top officials. And I want you to see two things about um, Jesus here because I think he's, he's setting up um, a, a potential offer um, to Herod and to all of Herod's palace. In other words, Herod is part of the one who sentences Jesus to Pilate and to be crucified. He could have intervened, and Herod was really the one who had John the Baptist killed, and then he was instrumental in having Jesus killed. That's a fearsome thing, Yeah. So what Jesus, though, in all of his love and in all of his foreknowledge is setting up here is he's even inviting someone in Herod's own intimate house and party, part of his absolute his kingdom, um, to come and to experience the life and the love and the healing and the forgiveness of this Jesus so that as he goes back, he's even giving opportunity um, to Herod and to Herod's whole kingdom and whole party to give their lives to Jesus. So you've got to begin to see the heart of God to reach even the hardest hearts. Now, did Herod turn? No. But was it an offer? Yes. Like, capture that a second. There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one who is too far departed that the grace of God cannot reach and draw them back. There is an offer, and to see and to understand the pursuit of God on every level with every human is an absolute mind-boggling thing. To grasp that he's a God who won't give up on one person who leaves the 99 to go after the one. So immediately we even see here that, that Jesus is already reaching out to Herod, and there's a moment, I think it's at Luke 23 or something, I'm not going to read it, but there's a moment where Jesus actually comes before Herod, and it looks like Chusa and some other people are there, and it was probably in that moment when Herod encountered that fulcrum point where he could have given his life to Jesus, and he refused. That's humbling. Okay, so we have a man who has traveled 21 miles, and he comes to Jesus, and he begs him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, verse 48, Jesus responds. Okay, 
we, we got to set this up because this is, this is actually hard. This is really hard. So you have a son. You have a father who's come 21 miles. His son is close to death, and the word here is begged him. So you kind of get this idea that this, um, this father is absolutely desperate. Um, let, me, let me put this in the heart of my own like, father heart for a second. We have two daughters uh, with type 1 diabetes. And when they were initially diagnosed, there was sort of um, there was some life-threatening incidents that happened, and the desperation in the heart of a father when one of his kids is on the brink of life and death is unbelievable, unbelievable. The prayers that you pray in that moment um, are more desperate and more open and more humble and more contrite and more hungry than probably anything I've ever prayed. So you have a father who is uh, losing a son. Um, and he runs to Jesus, and he begs him, will you come, and will you heal my son? So he's actually demonstrating a good deal of what? Faith. Like, like we don't even know if this guy's a, a Jewish person. He could be. Uh, we think he might be, but he's demonstrating an enormous amount of faith, and then more than even faith, he's come off his high horse, and he's taken his place where? At the feet of Jesus. So he's begging, so he's humbled his heart, he is laying his heart down, he's saying, Jesus, will you come? And so there's a group of people who are all standing around watching, and what do you think they're saying about this guy? This is ex-so-and-so, the famous politician who we all see, right? And he comes in, kneels at the feet of Jesus. So we begin to see humility, we begin to see contrition, we begin to see faith. Now, there's also some presumption or some assumption I think we see in this man because he's going, surely that you can't heal my son unless you actually go there. There's some assumption that, well, this can't happen unless you come and see him um, in person. But what faith that this guy is demonstrating? Now, look at Jesus in verse 48. <clears throat> unless you people... Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. How's that coming across? Come on. That comes across harsh, doesn't it? That comes across absolutely harsh. And I think what you immediately begin to see here is there's a questioning as to how hungry are you, Chusa? How hungry are you really? Like he calls into question with this bold statement, how hungry are you? How much spiritual fervor is inside of you? Um, are you willing to humble yourself before me? Um, how receptive are you uh, to what I am here to do, to, what I, to my ministry? And you begin to see sort of this, um, the fulcrum point is uh, the receptivity of this man, the receptivity even of Cana where Jesus is versus the pride and the resistance of Jerusalem. So what's Jesus go for? Receptive hearts. You begin to see uh, the pride and the self-righteousness of Jerusalem. So we're cleaning up the outside of ourselves. We're performing. We're becoming religious um, versus someone who's willing to humble themselves before the feet of Jesus, uh, even come off their high horse, right, literally and probably figuratively, and bow down before him and ask for his dependence or his intervention, so you, you, and you also begin to see, I think, the difference between corporate hunger um, and individual hunger. What do I mean by that? Why does Jesus return to Cana? Corporate hunger. 
There's a hunger, there is a corporate hunger that actually exists in the town of Cana. And I'm convinced that when a town uh, is hungry for the presence of Jesus, that heaven cannot resist. And Jesus goes there. So, so take that on church level for a minute. And let's even separate this. Take that on a personal level. If we begin to ask ourselves, how hungry for the things of Jesus am I really? That's humbling. And then we begin to look across our, who we are as a church, and we begin to go, how hungry for the things of Jesus, how hungry for the person of Jesus are we really? So I would actually say to you that this little city of Cana has some level of hunger, corporate hunger, not just individual hunger, although I think there was individual hunger, but there was also corporate hunger. So how do you build a vibrant, passionate church? Well, you, you raise up a group of people who are significantly hungry for the person of Jesus, and you begin to catch fire this corporate hunger for the things of Jesus. It doesn't much matter what you're singing or how you're singing or what you're dressing like or what you're meeting in. It's about actually looking to and and finding the person of Jesus. I mean, worship was so good this morning. I can also worship to drums. I can also worship to hymns. I can also worship in a blacked out auditorium. I can worship anywhere because it's more about what? What's inside of us. It's more about our own personal hunger. So I think the thing that, that immediately begins to ignite here is how hungry is this man who's walked 21 miles and then bowed down before Jesus. And then Jesus really rebukes him. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Verse 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Total humility. Total dependence. Total, like, lays it all down. No pride, no self-righteousness, and really total faith. Jesus, will you come and will you heal my Son, it's like, oh. If there's a fulcrum point in this story with this man, I think this is it. It's when Jesus gives this rebuke. I think Jesus here is asking and making sure that this man was asking in genuineness and in earnest. Let's put ourselves in this man's shoes for just a minute. How might we have responded if we got rebuked in front of a whole crowd? Come on, let's go there a second. Might you have walked away? Might your feelings have been hurt? What if the man would have walked away right there? I mean, like, go there a second. This is today, too. This is us also. Put yourself in the man's shoes. Whatever you've come in here with, whatever you're pressing into the person of Jesus about. When, when I was uh, traveling through um, Israel, we stopped in one of my favorite little villages is the village of Magdala. And there's a lady who came from Magdala named Mary of Magdalene or Mary of Magdala. And, and one of my favorite things is they, they have built this church there. And if you go inside the church on the backdrop, like the, this part of the church is a picture of the woman who is pressing through the crowd. She's got the issue of blood and she touches just the hem of Jesus's garment. And so what you see in this amazing work of art is you see all these feet and you can see the feet of Jesus, right? And you see this hand. You don't even see the woman's face. You see a shadow of her face, but her hand is like pressing through to find Jesus the hem 
hem of Jesus' garment, right? And Jesus stops everybody, and he's like, who touched me? And the disciples are all like, there's hundreds of people around here. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? Who touched you? And he's like, no, 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 no. Power went out of me. Who touched me? Who pressed in? Who had greater faith? Who was willing to humble themselves? Who pressed in through all the crowds and all the people to find me in that secret place? Who touched me? And you got the same kind of issue being set up here. Who's the one who is willing to run the 21 miles? Who's the one that's willing to bow down before King Jesus? Who's the one that's actually touching and tasting a relationship with him when nobody else is looking? This journey is not just about a corporate gathering. Church is amazing. I love church. I love singing corporately. I love worshiping corporately. But it's also about who in the quiet spots where no one is looking is pressing through the crowd to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus. That's a relationship with him. And that's what's even happening with this royal official. Verse 50, Jesus says, go, your son will live. And I think at some level, Jesus' response here is that in this moment when the royal official could have gotten offended, how easily are we offended? How many times a day or week do we get offended? Come on, be honest, a lot, yeah? Yeah. People say something wrong. People look at us wrong. People cut us off in traffic. Come on, if you're like me. But if, you, if, if, if he would have gotten offended and turned and run away, he would have missed what's about to happen. He would have missed his wife coming to Jesus. He would have missed him coming to Jesus. He would have missed, the end of this actually says, his whole household came to Jesus. Like what happens because he is willing to stay and humble himself with a hungry heart? So if there's a crux of this whole message, this whole everything that we're talking about, it's that the kingdom of heaven is attracted to those who have both humility of heart and hunger of heart. The kingdom of heaven cannot resist and will not resist people who are willing to bow their knee before him and be hungry for his person and presence. That's what walking with Jesus is about. You want to experience Jesus powerfully, you you, you do it in the secret. That's why I'm always going, how's your one-year Bible? How's your five-year journal? Like, are are you putting worship on in the car? Are you actually practicing the presence of God? We, we laugh because there's just various times in our house where we're going and I'll just start to pray. I think I told you a couple weeks ago, I don't ever pray very long. Isn't that terrible? Wait for it. But I don't ever go very long without praying because it's a relationship. It's an ongoing and he walks with me and he talks with me. I'm like, oh, there's the whole sermon. Let's go home. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Come on. That's what this thing is about. Go, Jesus says, verse 50, your son will live. Now look at this faith. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. How about that for faith? Did he know? Did anybody text him? Anybody Instagram him? Anybody Facebook him? Anybody call him? He has no idea. All he's doing, I just can't, part of me can't even imagine. Jesus looks at him and says, go, your son will live. And he's like, okay. 
What simple faith, what profound faith, the things that we kneel before Jesus and and ask him and we hear perhaps something that we don't understand and can't see if we would simply get up and trust and walk forward. I mean, what faith this guy has. Go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. So let's talk about that just for a minute. There is a, um, if it was 21 miles away, give or take, um, he would not have traveled at night because it wasn't safe. So he would have probably waited the next day. Yeah, he probably would have waited, spent the night somewhere. So all this time he's doing what? What if my son's died? What if my son's been healed? Can you imagine the what ifs? Come on, there's some of you in here today, what ifing things. What if this happens? What if God doesn't touch my child? What if God doesn't touch my spouse? What if God doesn't provide? What if God doesn't heal my anxiety? What if, come on, he goes on and on and on, right? And he is in this what if place. Has it happened? I wouldn't say for a minute that he's like rock solid, not even one, one little iota of negative thought crept in. I'm guessing he's like up all night twiddling his thumbs going, oh my goodness, is my son dead or is he alive? Has Jesus performed this miracle or am I going to go home and have to do a funeral? It's real. So the next morning, verse 51, he would have gotten up and while he was still on his way, so he's hiking home, his servants meet him with the news that his boy was living. Isn't it interesting? And I wonder at what moment, let's keep reading, when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Right when Jesus spoke. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. So he got home, and what's he do? He tells everybody. At the exact time the fever broke is when Jesus said that he would live. What authority Jesus has. Then the father realized this exact time, so he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so let's talk about a couple of things here because I think there's some um, depth and some richness. And Father, I pray that as we unpack a few things that you would impact and dig deep in our own hearts, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What is the prerequisite for receiving uh, Jesus and walking with him? A hungry heart. Ask. Ask. Absolutely right. So it it is... um, If we don't respond, in fact, John um, tells us that we love because he first loved us. So if our hearts do not respond to him in love, are we, uh, do not respond to him with asking, do not respond to him with pursuing. So at some level, this father whose son is sick is responding to some unction or initiation that God is doing in his heart. But if he didn't go and ask, what would have happened? Someone would have died. 
Like, you got to make that connection. It's like, this is, this is God's sovereignty uh, being the bookends and our free will existing within the confines of his sovereignty. But if we're not actively participating with him and asking, uh, then I think we have the capacity to miss it. Uh, you follow me? Okay, so what is it about Cana that God is drawn to? I think it's about a, a group of people um, who are receptive. I think it's about a group of people who are humble. I think it's about a group of people who have a growing faith. And I think it's about a group of people who are willing to have dependence and surrender versus the self-aggrandizement and pride that's going on in Jerusalem. Jesus leaves the proud and he embraces the humble. That's where the kingdom of God goes. And the kingdom of God cannot resist a heart that is humble and a heart that's willing to go and bow before him and say, oh, Father, will you, whatever it is, fill in the blank. That's where the kingdom of God dwells. Let's, let's wrestle here just a minute because I think there's something deeper under this story that's really important for us to see. Proverbs 18.12 says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. A haughty heart or a proud heart is a prophetic prelude to ruin. And what you see here in this royal official is total humility, total dependence, total faith. Think of Nebuchadnezzar with me for a minute. Nebuchadnezzar in his pride elevated himself and God turned the prideful boaster into a beast that literally ate grass on the hills. Lucifer elevates himself. And God turns what once was an angel into the devil. There's a, there's a sobering moment in all of this that the kingdom of God meets us most powerfully when we humble ourselves before him, when we're on our knees before him, when we're craw- uh, crying out to him. I think God, I would, I would say to you that God... Um, resists the proud is what the word said right but he embraces the humble the errors of god are always aimed at proud hearts and church if there's anything that i would want to call us to not just now but as we as we go as we grow as we transition it's that god embraces the deepest lowliness of heart and dependence upon him and the kingdom of god and jesus dwells most powerfully on those who sit most lowly that's where we want to be. This man came in humility and dependence, and the Lord met him there. 1 Corinthians one thirty one says that let those who boast, boast in the Lord Jesus. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Humility and dependence is the currency of heaven required to access the kingdom of God. It's what draws Jesus to a city to a town, to a church, to a person. It's also what the lack thereof repels Jesus from a town, from a city, from a church, and from a person. Oh, Lord. I want to end and tie this up with Hebrews 11. 
fact, as we move towards a close, Rick, would you come when you're able and just play for us? Hebrews 11.1, 1, this is what it says. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Go back to the Father. What's he hoping for? The healing of his son. That's right. And certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now, go to the very end of Hebrews 11. Verse 33, verse 32, there's a whole list of people. And then verse 33 says, 11, Hebrews eleven thirty-three. 33, and these people through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, escaped the edge of the sword, listen to this, whose weakness was turned to strength. Say that with me whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. How do we approach Jesus, church? Hungry. How do we approach Jesus? Humble. How do we approach Jesus? Weak. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There is this inescapable link between great faith and great surrender. There's an inescapable link between great relationship with him and great humility. How do we approach Jesus? Hungry? How do we approach Jesus? Humble? How do we approach Jesus? Weak. Now here's where I want you to flip it into your situation today. Whatever it is that you've come in with, that you're wrestling with, Whatever it is, approach him hungry, approach him humble, and approach him weak. And invite him into that spot, into that relationship, into that hurt, into that situation. And then as he speaks, be like the man that stood up and said, okay, what faith? So here's how I want to end this morning. I'm actually going to ask you to stand up stand as a church. Let's close our eyes, wherever you are. Just close your eyes. And whatever it is that you walked in here with, Approach Jesus with humility. Approach Jesus with hunger. Approach Jesus with weakness. And invite his strength to be magnified and glorified in that spot. Whatever you walked in here with this morning, would you even be so courageous as just to whisper it beneath your breath? Whatever thing you're contending for, whatever thing that's brought you anxiety or fear or concern or worry or regret, whisper it out to him. Maybe you'd open a hand and say, Jesus, would you take it? Open a heart and say, Jesus, Jesus. This is the God that heals. This is the God that restores. This is the God that lifts up the brokenhearted. 
This is the God that binds up the things that have been destroyed. This is the God that takes things that have been broken and puts them back together in a way that are absolutely beautiful. This is the God that speaks and resurrects those that have died. This is the God that heals and restores and redeems. Whisper it out, church, whatever it is. Open your hands, whisper it out. Whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever it is you're carrying, open your hands before him. Come with hunger, come with humility, come with weakness. Let his strength be glorified in that spot. Lord Jesus, would you wash over this auditorium? Would you meet people? Lord, would you speak to people? Father, would you renew hearts? Lord, would you change minds? Lord, would you heal relationships? Would you touch physical bodies to bring healing? Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts, in our homes, in our marriages, with our kids, in our families, in our singleness, Lord Jesus. In our work, would you provide? Father, would you allow us to be a church that approaches you with hunger, that approaches you with humility? Jesus, just ask him. Say, Lord Jesus, would you show yourself to me? We're contending here a minute, church. We're resting in his presence here just a minute. Open a hand, open a heart. Say, Jesus, would you reveal yourself more fully to me? Father, would you allow us to be a church that would practice your presence, that would walk with you, that would know you, that would cross the 21 miles to chase you down? bow before you and invite you more powerfully into our hearts and minds. Father, as we go from this place, Father, would you fill us with your kingdom and your presence, your will and your way. As we're in an attitude of prayer before we go, prayer team, if you're available, would you come up and just be available? Maybe a couple at the back, maybe a few up front here. If you're in the room and you've never given your life to Jesus, or if you're online and you've never given your life to Jesus, would you come up and find me if you're online? I think we have Patrick and or Nikki online. Get in contact with them. And we'd love to lead you into the saving knowledge of him. Church, listen to me. No matter where you are, no matter how painful or desperate of a place, when you approach him with hunger and humility, heaven will not reject you, ever, ever. As we go from here today, go under the revelation that if you are responding to him and pursuing him because he first loved you, he will always meet you in the way. Lord Jesus, in this room, there's needs all around. Father, would you meet with your people? Jesus, we pray. Amen. Go humble, go hungry, and go expectant, because he's real and he's here.